Hello, and welcome to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. The Trudeau government has unveiled its new defense policy with a promise of pumping billions of new dollars into our armed forces to grow and modernize the military. To kick off our show, we have an in-depth interview with Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, who addresses concerns about the new spending, explains how cyber attacks could allow the military to disrupt organizations like ISIS, and he defends the controversial decision to buy unmanned armed drones. Ahead of the new defense policy, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland gave a speech in the House of Commons outlining the government's foreign priorities. She says Canada can't rely on the U.S. anymore for defense or global leadership. McLean senior writer Paul Wells and McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes join me to give their thoughts. And we end off our show speaking with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. She was in Ottawa recently in her role as chair of the Global Partnership for Education, we spoke with her about how she feels the Trudeau government can step up its efforts in educating children around the world. For your politics, for your power, welcome to The Hill. It's been more than a year in the making, but the Trudeau government has finally unveiled its new defense policy and its promising major changes with lots of spending. The 20-year framework is called Strong, Secure, Engaged, and I have it in my hands right now. It is 113 pages filled with 111 separate commitments. Now, the federal government wants to boost defense spending from $18.9 billion last fiscal year to $32.7 billion by 2026. That's an increase of 70% over 10 years. Now, the military says it will be using that money to increase the overall size of the regular and reserve forces by about 5,000. That should bring the total size of our military to uh, more than 100,000 members. But it's not just manpower. Uh, the military wants to buy a whack load of new equipment, including armored vehicles, ships for the Navy, and drones. Now, drones have been a point of controversy for some time in debates around the world, uh, but Canada has now made the decision to buy unmanned armed drones. Of course, we also have to replace our CF-18s. That aging fleet will be replaced with 88 fighter jets. That's an increase on the 65 that the previous conservative government said it wanted to buy. Now, there will also be the creation of a new cybersecurity force within our armed forces. And this will allow the military to now engage in cyber attacks. There's a heck of a lot of stuff in this. And to dig a little bit deeper into the new policies and what, what they'll all mean for our military and the country, there is no better person to speak to than Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan. So, Minister Sajjan, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. All right, so let's let's start with the money because that's a big part of your plan. Uh, more than sixty billion dollars over twenty years, but in a more short-term frame, your plan is to increase the budget by about fourteen billion dollars uh, over the next ten years. That's with new money. Where is that money actually going to come from? Because the finance minister has already budgeted for the next five to. 
10 years with his plan and his budget, and we didn't have this kind of spending. So is it going to become come from deeper deficits for the government, or are we going to see cuts to other departments to make sure that defense can spend the money it needs? No, actually, when, when we... Uh or when we finalized the defense policy review and we went through the uh, the rigorous costing uh, process, and and we as a government uh, then decided on uh, for this uh, in, uh, defense spending, it, as the minister of finance stated in the in the previous budget when it was launched, that our government's commitment to um, uh, as part of the defense policy will will be in there, and so this has been taken into account um, with the the long term fiscal framework, um, which was announced in in the last budget. We just wanted to make sure it was announced separately as part of the defense policy. So you don't need to make cuts from any departments or go deeper into deficits than what you had already planned. No, we we, uh, we as a government has uh, committed to uh, supporting the Canadian Armed Forces. So this is this was taken into account um, uh, uh, when the Minister of Finance uh, announced our budget. That's one of the reasons why when I stated that we wanted to complete the work for the Defense Policy Review by the end of the year, so that we could have those detailed discussions of um, uh, making sure that the money, um, uh, the the amount it's, itself that we can go through the deep analysis with the Minister of Finance, and that, that was done. So during when the uh, budget was announced, uh, the, the Minister of Finance announced that the, the, the planned uh, de- uh, spending for defense will be announced in the defense policy. Because, I mean, the defense policy itself is a very big deal, and we wanted to make sure that uh, we announced this to Canadians in the manner which we did yesterday. You are increasing spending quite a bit, but we're still going to be far from our NATO spending target of 2% of GDP. The numbers that you gave was by 2024-25, we would hit 1.4% of our GDP. And it will rise a little bit further beyond that, but then it will start to dip again. So at a time when our allies are asking us to hit our 2% target, your long-term vision uh, for the military in terms of spending won't hit that target. So are you basically saying no to our allies? No, in fact, the, the Wales Pledge, uh, Canada is committed uh, to, the, to the Wales Pledge. Uh, the defense policy that we created is for Canada. Um, but as part of the, um, our responsibility to be, as the defense policy stays strong at home, we do have a responsibility to, to the world. And our multilateral is very important, and Mr. Freeland outlined that uh, quite eloquently a couple of days ago in, in her speech. So we took into account our, our responsibility at NATO to be able to uh, be working with coalitions, our eventual peace support op- operations that we'll be um, uh, announcing. So we've taken that in, in, into, um, uh, into account. And what the Wales Pledge also said is nations to stop the decline in, uh, in spending. And given what the planned increases, uh, we knew that the, the, the numbers were going down. Hence the reason why we made uh, uh, this um, uh, announcement for defense spending. Now, this defense spending for the next 20 years gives the Canadian Armed Forces all the necessary resources um, so they can carry out their missions. And let's never forget, we, when we end up talking about the money and we talk about the, uh, the ships that we're buying, the planes, the number one capability, um, it's our people. And we need to look after them. We need to look after their families, making sure that all the, uh, the benefit packages are in place. That's why the tax-free uh, exemption was so important, the support for the MFRCs, the military family resource centers, to look after their families. 
So what we've done here is now create, um, with the 20-year plan, allows the Canadian Armed Forces to be well-suited so our, our government and future governments will be able to utilize them well. But when it comes to our defense uh, spending in terms of our GDP, NATO wants uh, an increase uh, so that nations can uh, share the burden. And we, too, feel the same way. That's why we've taken a leadership role uh, in NATO. So it's about actually stepping up and doing something with it. I'll give you an example. You can have a mil- military that's uh, a million people in it and spend a lot of money for it, but if they don't have the necessary tools, well, you don't become credible. What we have here is a, uh, a force that structure that's going to be credible, it's going to be well-equipped, and with the right leadership to actually have an impact. And hence one of the reasons why we've taken a leadership role as one of the uh, framework nations for the battle groups in Latvia. And, you know, something that uh, this leadership role that has been lacking for probably the last 20 years. So do you think that our allies will accept that, though? There's been a push for more spending. You're saying we're not going to hit that target, but we will you know, commit in other ways and we'll, we'll step up to take action even though we're not spending our target. Uh, will our allies accept that? No, our allies expect, just like we do, is nations to step up, making sure that we're spending uh, on defense, making sure that our equipment is not becoming uh, obsolete. And we expect that of all nations. Then at the same time, you can have all this defense investment, but what are you going to do with it? Are you going to be a credible partner at time of need? Uh, well, Canada, we have we have stepped up, and um, I'm not sure if you've been able to see all the comments from our important allies. Uh, one, it's been very positive because we don't create a defense policy in isolation either. Um, we do consult our allies, just like they consulted us when they were developing theirs. For example, the UK, um, New Zealand, and Australia conducted their defense policy reviews, and we had an input into theirs, and they had an input in ours. So we work very closely together to making sure we have the right force structures. For example, there are certain capabilities that we have uh, that it's far superior to others that allow uh, that allows us to uh, to fill uh, certain gaps for other nations as other nations provide support for us. So it's about working together, and that's why multilateralism is so important uh, to to our government because there's no one nation can deal with the challenges that uh, that we face around the world. All right, that was the first half of our in-depth interview with Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan discussing the Trudeau government's new defense policy. Stick around on McLean's on the Hill because Sajjan isn't going anywhere. Coming up, we continue our conversation with the minister who addresses concerns around buying unmanned armed drones and he tells us how he hopes military cyber attacks can disrupt terror groups like ISIS. Later in the show, the McLean's panel weighs in on the government's foreign affairs priorities and former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard speaks to us about how Canada should be investing more in global education. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, John Geddes and Paul Wells join me to discuss the Trudeau government's priorities on foreign affairs, and we end off the show discussing global education with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. But first, we continue our in-depth interview with Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan on the defence policy released this week by the Trudeau government. In the first half of our talk, we discussed questions and concerns around funding and our NATO commitments. But now, we'll move on to matters like cyber attacks, fighter jets, and drones.
Let's talk about drones for a second. Uh, there are some ethical debates around the use of unmanned vehicles that are armed. Um, you know, there are people who say there's not the same judgment that you have, and there's a desensitivity when somebody is uh, firing a missile from a million miles away, acting as if it's a video game, as opposed to somebody who may be in a fighter jet and may see and actually have the experience of, of firing that missile for themselves. And there's a judgment call there. How do you, how do you respond to some of the criticisms? When, uh, when it comes to remote pilot systems, first of all, um, we're looking at air, ground, and underwater as well. And we've, the remote pilot systems play a crucial role for uh, surveillance um, presence, um, especially here in Canada. We need to look at is the surveillance side of things for Arctic. We have um, uh, our coastlines uh, are, are vast. We know that we can't put a person uh, to cover every angle. So our, our reconnaissance surveillance of our coastline for our own sovereignty is very important. Plus, uh, the our systems are going to allow greater flexibility uh, for our military leadership when, if our troops ever need uh, these type of resources. And but keep in mind the most important things about any equipment, whether it's a fighter jet or remote pilot systems. Every single engagement, every single operation goes through the very strict process, targeting process, and rules of engagement that we'll set out. It's how we use that. And unfortunately, um, uh, you know, the way this has been perceived, whether it's been through, through, um, through TV or other nations utilizing certain capabilities, doesn't mean our Canada will use it in the same manner. I'll give you an example. For example, uh, fighter jets in certain areas um, uh, for the safety of the pilot cannot fly in certain type of weather. Uh, but at least it allows a commander to make a judgment call of sending a remote pilot assistant to be able to make sure that we have the security uh, for our troops. But one thing I can assure you, the targeting process and the rules of engagement will, um, uh, are exactly the same for every asset that we have. And also, it's very also important to know, whether you're, drop, whether you're targeting uh, from a fighter aircraft at 25,000 feet versus uh, being somewhere else, that pilot or the pilot uh, anywhere else will go through a very strict targeting process. And Canada has always had a very uh, rigorous targeting process, uh, regardless of what we do. Chief of Defense Staff will make sure that the, the rules of engagement is always strict. It's in accordance with the uh, international law, the law of armed conflict, and especially our um, Canadian law. And when will you buy the drones? How many drones are you going to buy? And how much are you looking at spending? So. Uh, when I launched the, the defense policy review, I said this policy will not be a shopping list. We are going to be talking about capabilities. For certain things, we did need to uh, uh, put out numbers because a lot of work has been on the, done in the past. We need to get the costing right for them. For example, the combat service combatants that's going to replace our frigates, we, the number to give, we, we will be purchasing 15 and we're costing for it. 65 aircraft and uh, number the previous government put out, we need to be able to say that was not enough. And the, real, the realistic number is 88 so that we can actually live up to our commitments. But when it comes to other capabilities, um, the, num the right num uh, the number of U uh, remote pilot systems. Now we, we will identify the uh, uh, the requirements for it, uh, and then we'll work out the detailed analysis for exactly the number that's needed, the type that's needed. For example, we'll also be able to be very mindful of, of the north, the extreme weather conditions that are up there. So we need to get the right system. Um, 
so we don't have the exact numbers exactly of what we're going to be consumer buying because that work is going to start on that. But we have uh, identified in the policy that this capability is needed. Are you hoping to sign procurement contracts for a lot of these equipment buys before the 2019 election? Uh, in fact, actually, a lot of the work has already started on on the procurement. We want to move as quickly uh, as as possible. Uh, for example, we've uh, the joint supply ship. Um, the design for it was already announced. The combat service combatant design is being competed um, at, at at this moment, and we look forward to announcing that. Uh, the replacement of the permanent fighter fleet. The team has been selected. The work is ongoing, and we look forward to an- announcing the. Um, uh, uh, the R, um, RFP for that as well. So when, when when will that happen? Is is that going to happen before the next election, or, or is that going to happen before the end of this year? Oh, we will be doing it within our, within our mandate. Uh, the work has already started. We we want to move as quickly as possible, but we do want to do it in a manner that also respects all the rules and regulations. Uh, uh, but making sure that we actually have a process that we get the right equipment. And what I've said is we want to have a proper competition with our requirements so that our requirements are, are met. And then through a, if you do a proper competition, we'll get the right aircraft um, uh, for the Canadian Armed Forces. Yeah. Uh, but more, more importantly, we, we all those little things need to be worked out because it's not just about buying something off the shelf. Interoperability, communications, there's so many things that need to be looked at, and that's why we need to make sure we take the time to get this right. A few more questions, very little time. I hope we can squeeze them in. Cyber attacks, uh, something that the military will now be looking at and handling. Um, the former FBI director, uh, James Comey, said in testimony in the U.S., he has no doubts the Russians were behind cyber intrusions during the last U.S. election. Um, is this the type of thing that your new cyber operatives will be targeting or looking at? The military um, uh, cyber capability is one tool as part of the, the wider government uh, when we look at our security. Um, uh, communication security establishment is the expert agency when it comes to protecting our uh, infrastructure and uh, our cyber defense. And what the military component allows us to do, because working in complex operations, whether it's, for example, in Iraq right now, um, uh, against Daesh, uh, making sure our systems are protected, making sure that we can shut down IED devices so that our troops, um, as they drive down the road, um, uh, that they don't explode. Those are those things that are so important to making sure that our we have the right capability. But when you look at the cyber protection of our nation, it's much broader than the military it, it itself. And that's why uh, Minister Goodale is leading that. Um, he's conducted... Uh, uh, the, the review, um, and we're working very hard to making sure that all the security agencies and that we have a, a comprehensive package that looks after uh, cyber defense from other uh, you know a- adversaries, but also protecting our uh, our infrastructure as well. And uh, just to be clear, you said uh, with Daesh, uh, ISIS. Um, so you're hoping the military could do cyber attacks on terrorist organizations like ISIS. It's, it, when we look at cyber attacks, we have to be mindful of how that's uh, what we're talking about here. I'll give you an example. When you have uh, an IED, I'm just giving an elaboration on an example here, a, a facilitator that's teaching other people online how to build IEDs that potentially might uh, threaten our soldiers, being able to shut that down 
for the sake of safety of our troops. Those are the things that we're talking about. And there's many other aspects, obviously, to this. But those are the things that we're, we're talking uh, about. And to making sure that our troops are well protected in this evolving threat domain that, that we see. And we know that groups like Daesh are increasing uh, their ability in, the, um, uh, in cyber as well. And we need to make sure that we always stay ahead of our adversaries on this. Last question for you, because I know you have to run, but um, the military has had this long-standing target of trying to make sure that its membership is made up of 25% women. Uh, there's still a long way to go for that. But was there any discussion at all uh, around this defense policy review of possibly uh, having gender equality within the military? Well, first of all, this defense policy, the number one focus is actually to focus on our people, um, making sure that they're looked after. And that's why the uh, that's what number one thing that we heard from Canadians during our consultations. And that's why it's in our first chapter of how we're going to look after our men and women, their benefits, looking after their fa- family as well. And also it's important for the Canadian Armed Forces to represent uh, Canada. And that means all its diversity to making sure that we actually increase our ability to uh, get the best and brightest and increase our pool. And we need to reach out uh, to women. So that goal of 25% is not a ceiling. It's, it's, a one, it's a ceiling that we'd like to exceed and we're going to work very hard to be able to move past that. And the ultimate goal is to get to gender parity. And uh, uh, it's a challenge that we're willing to take up and but I'm very proud of the work that the chief of defense staff has done on recruitment um, uh, so that we can create the, uh, the right environment reach our 25% uh, goal and look towards exceeding it but also to look at uh, increasing the diversity because it's not no longer it's just this is not about the right thing to do this is an operational necessity for the Canadian Armed Forces that we get the best and brightest and we have all the right talent uh, for all the challenges that we face around the world. Minister Sajjan thank you so much for your time today I really appreciate it. Great, thank you so much. That was Defense Minister Harjeet Sajjan on the new defense policy released this week by the Trudeau government. Still to come, the McLean's panel weighs in on the defense policy and the government's foreign priorities, and later we speak with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. Welcome back to McLean's on the Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. Coming up on the show, we speak about global education with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard. But first... This week we thought we would have a McLean's panel to try and discuss the big foreign and defense policies that were released this week by the Trudeau government. And joining me to do so is McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Thanks very much for being here, guys. Ah, great to be here. Thank you. All right. A big week. It all started off with Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland standing in the House of Commons to basically lay out the priorities for this government when it comes to foreign affairs. Uh, There were also some comments about the United States. There were headlines uh, almost making it seem as if uh, she was criticizing the U.S. by saying that the U.S. has pulled away from its global leadership and Canada can no longer rely on the United States for defense and global issues. So, Paul, what do you make of Christia Freeland's speech? Um, 
it's it's highly unusual for any minister, frankly, to stand in the House of Commons and explain what they do in general for close to an hour. <laughs> it should be more common, and it's not. Uh, and and I, I think that the moment that Freeland chose uh, was spurred by two things. First of all, that the next day her colleague uh, Harj Sajjan was going to bring out the uh, defense policy. And so it's a good moment to think about Canada and the world. And secondly, Ten days earlier, there was a G7 summit in which, uh, in in Italy, in which Trump uh, seemed to be very disengaged with uh, his international responsibilities. And I think the federal government has, to some extent, decided that uh, staying in this guy's good books is, first of all, pretty easy, and secondly, barely worth it. Hmm. And so it's time to start governing. Um, uh, less with a, an, an obsessive eye toward how Donald Trump will, will react and more to govern around him, uh, to, to figure out how Canada can uh, diversify its exports away from uh, uh, the United States, to figure out how it can build alliances that don't include an American, uh, and to um, build bridges around the world rather than just than having a sort of a exclusively domestic and Canada-US set of policies. And is a lot of this new, though? Haven't we already seen a lot of the groundwork uh, that the government has put in place to try and move beyond the United States, such as uh, International Trade Minister uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne heading to many different countries and having talks right now to try and boost our trade and, and boost our relations with others? Uh, there is no more uh, busy cabinet minister than uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne. Uh, his staff offered me an interview with him two months ago, and I'm finally going to get it on June 24th. Uh, and, and he simply, has, he simply hasn't uh, been on the ground long enough to talk in the meantime. Uh, but Canadian attempts to diversify trade away from the United States are eternal. Um, there's uh, a, a, a Canada-Britain wheat deal that uh, Jimmy Gardner, the, the, the great uh, agriculture minister of the 40s and 50s, uh, cooked up after the Second World War. Uh, Justin Trudeau's father uh, sought a third way, uh, um, a, a way to have trade relationships besides Canada-U.S. Uh, Stephen Harper tried, and they've they've come up against the geographic fact that the easiest thing in the world is to build a factory in the border and lob product across the border to Wisconsin. Hmm. Um, and now Justin Trudeau is going to try. And he may have better luck or he may have the same luck everyone always had. So, John, this big foreign speech was supposed to sort of tee everything up for the right. defense policy review that was released the day following. How did this complement with, de with the defense policy? Well, there's two ways. I mean, one way, it almost is an anti-complement, if that's a term. Like, people, if, if you think of Freeland's speech as being the kind of, well, Trump's not leading the world anymore, then the element of this, of the defense policy that was to step up Canada's spending to come a little closer to Donald Trump's targets for NATO would seem to be kind of kind of cutting against that, kind of trying to get close to President. I actually don't, don't think that's the driving thing behind the defense policy. Here's a weird thing. If you go back and look at the liberal platform from the 2015 election, they say the Harper government shortchanged the military, we're going to better equip the military and put the military on a long-term footing that it's more stable going forward. That's kind of what they tried to do this week. So to suggest that the policy comes out entirely out of the Trump moment seems to miss a point, which is that taking them at their word, it does seem like the Liberals came into office thinking they were going to do something like this. Hey, can I back away just for a second? Listen to Paul talking about Christian Freeland made me think of something. 
Sometimes people think of Ottawa as this insular place say, where, where politicians don't really have very, very sophisticated connections. In this week, we had Freeland, whose family roots are in the Ukraine, who understands Europe, but who had an, has an American mentor, Lawrence Summers, the sort of powerful fig economics figure from the Obama and Clinton White Houses and a you know, significant figure. So she kind of has a, a, a U.S. perspective and a global perspective. And then you've got Harjit Sajjan, who family roots are in India, who worked in Afghanistan and Bosnia, but along with that sort of broad global perspective, has an American mentor, General James Terry. So we've got these interesting cabinet ministers whose perspectives are both kind of international and sort of bilateral. I think it's, a, it's fascinating just to think of them crafting policy in this particular moment. Do you think, uh, to get back to the defense policy, do you yeah. think the, the Little, policies... You're saying I digressed from the defense policy there? <laughs> you admittedly <laughs> yes, did so. Yes, I did. <laughs> yeah. um, but do you think it struck the right chord? There's a lot of spending here, yeah, but a the, lot of it is backloaded. So yeah. I, I, there have been some sure. criticisms that they need money now, not five well, to ten years Well, they're now. getting about uh, more than half a billion dollars this year, right, which is going to come in, the, if for people who follow this kind of thing, it'll come in the fall supplementary estimate. So there is some upfront money in this. I think it's slightly wrong. Now, it's true, the big money, I wrote this, the billions, of multiple billions of dollars will come after the next election. So one of the questions everyone, I think, rightfully asks is how can this policy bind any future government to, to spend money. We've all seen defense projections go awry. They're scaled back when there's an oil price slump or a deficit spike or a recession. That, that happens. There are some differences here. To be fair to the government, they've spelled out the spending more concretely and with more specifics than I've ever seen before. And the defense minister says, and I think this is justifiable, that that will make it harder for future governments, not impossible, but harder for them to scale back simply because critics in the opposition benches, the military establishment and the media will be able to look and say, hey, wait a minute, we have a document from 2017 that says how much you should be spending this year in this and you've scaled it back. So it at least sets out benchmarks that people can watch in the years coming forward. And uh, there will be some contracts signed before the end of this uh, first mandate as well, which would yeah. bind the government legally yeah. to, to make some of those purchases. Yes. Are either of you surprised uh, that we still don't have any peacekeeping announcement yet from the government, uh, given the fact that the focus this week was all about defense mm. and foreign affairs, and yet we still have nothing on that? Paul? It's, it's unsurprising in that um, most of the places where you would reasonably send peacekeepers are hellholes. Yep. Uh, um, Mali, um, the United Nations held open the command of the, of, the, of the United Nations mission in Mali for several months at the beginning of the year, hoping that a Canadian would mm -hmm. fill it. Finally, they gave it to a, Bel a Belgian officer. Um, uh, soldiers are dying, including Western soldiers, are dying in Mali at the rate of a few a week. And Canadians stationed there would certainly die. The only thing I'm wondering is, if the Prime Minister is hoping that uh, things will calm down, uh, who is telling him that those kinds of missions will ever calm down? It's either going to be this dangerous in a year, um, or it'll be this dangerous in five years. Or like, I mean, th I these right. are intractable problems. And the decision isn't ever going to get easier. So um, at, 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 to some extent, the Prime Minister, I think, has to sort of... Um, uh, Fisher cut bait on the whole notion of sending Canadian soldiers into uh, very dangerous missions that would make a difference for the people on the ground, but are essentially optional to Canadian interests. That's entirely right. And if I could just add to that, Paul, like it's it, that's the truth about this particular mission we're about to take on, or we think we're about to take on. But more broadly, it's remarkable that we have 
a liberal defense policy document come out that is really very light on peacekeeping, right? You think about peacekeeping as being the liberal brand in defense, very light on that, and that's a noticeable thing about this defense review. All right. Thank you very much, guys. Really appreciate your thoughts. McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes and McLean Senior Writer Paul Wells. Coming up after the break on McLean's On the Hill, we speak with former Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard about how Canada can do more on global education. Welcome back to McLean's On The Hill. I'm Cormac McSweeney, Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for City News and Rogers Radio. In a week when foreign policy filled the air in Ottawa, there wasn't enough discussion about foreign aid. But Julia Gillard, who was the Prime Minister of Australia from 2010 to 2013, would like to change that. Gillard is a chair of the Global Partnership for Education. It's the only global fund dedicated to boosting education in poor countries. And she happened to be in Ottawa this week for the partnership's board meetings. Well, McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief John Geddes caught up with her, and she made her case for a big boost in aid funding specifically for education. Gillard took special note of the fact that Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is a former school teacher himself, making her hopeful that Trudeau will be receptive to her case. Just a note, the interview did take place in a hotel lobby, so there will be some background noise. Thanks very much for talking to McLean's on the Hill. Thank you very much. Great. Before I get into some questions, can you just introduce for our listeners... What is the Global Partnership for Education? I certainly can. The Global Partnership for Education is the only multilateral body in the world that focuses on school education in developing countries. And so we're trying to solve the problem that as we're having this conversation today, around 260 million children who are of school age don't get to go to school. They're not in school, they'll never go to school for a day. And hundreds of millions more do get some education but often it's not for sufficient time or it's of such low quality that they emerge from their school years not able to do the most simple literacy or numeracy tasks. So our mission as an organisation is to change that. We work with 89 countries around the world, low income and lower middle income countries. They cover 870 million children, nearly 80% of the world's out of school population. We work with them to properly plan education systems and in the lowest income countries we make major grants to enable the delivery of a section of the plan. Okay, let me ask you a question about this. As you sketch those big numbers, I, I can imagine people thinking, wow, that's, that, that's a huge challenge and maybe even a huge crisis in a, in a way. But I think when people cast their minds to the poor parts of the planet, they think about famine, disease, war um, as the crises. How do you make the case for education being prioritized with those other types of concerns? I think the best way of looking at the case for education is what is going to change the long-term uh, future of our planet? What is going to change countries for the future? Yes, of course, we've always got to have a humanitarian response in times of uh, famine, conflict, crisis. But we also know when you ask families, often in the most desperate of situations, including uh, you know people who have fled conflict in Syria, and you say to them, what's your number one 
one priority right now, they say, getting an education for my child. Because even in their desperation, what they want to do is to ensure that the next generation gets to live a better life than they did. And I think we can all feel that human impulse. I mean, in our own families, in our own communities, in our own lives, uh, we're all aware of the drive to try and make sure that the next generation lives better than we did, the next generation of Canadians. Uh, so uh, that's a shared human impulse. Uh, and what we also know, apart from people wanting an education for their children, is that education is the key to unlocking so many other benefits. You know, you will only grow a strong economy over time if you've got an educated populace. Uh, the evidence is very clear now about the health benefits of education, including if we can keep adolescent girls in school, they are less likely to get HIV AIDS. Uh, the evidence is also clear that particularly if we educate girls, their children will be more likely to survive infanthood, more likely to be vaccinated, more likely to go to school themselves. We know societies with higher education levels tend to be more peaceful societies. And we also know too, by educating girls, they get more options and choices in their lives. They'll choose to marry later. They'll choose to have fewer children. And that ultimately has a climate change benefit because global peak population will be less. Um, so, you sound like you've made this case before. <laughs> I have a feeling. Yeah, I might have had just a little bit of practice. But <laughs> You've probably heard thousands of these stories, but I'll just mention I, I interviewed some Syrian refugees who have come to Canada recently, and it was surprising how many said the tipping point for them on wanting either to get out of Syria or to get out of refugee camps in the region and, and get to some place like Canada was when they realized their, their kids were not going to be able to go to school where they were or were not going to be able to go to a decent school. It was actually quite a common story. Not the bombing, not the terror, although it doesn't obviously matter, yes. but we had gone two years with our kids not in school and we thought we have to get it and get them. So I thought, I, I thought it was a fascinating, it confirms what you were saying about the urgency with which people see it. Can I ask? I, I could just add no, to that. No, a, no. a board member uh, in the course of this board meeting shared a story from his country. Uh, his country had moved from having double shifts for secondary school, so kids go in the morning, then they go home and a whole new lot of kids come in the afternoon. Right. Uh, they moved from that double shifting to having a full school day and he was then Minister for Education he was wandering around pretty proud of himself that he'd brought this huge reform and he said the thing that stays with him always is he went to a school to sort of celebrate this change and a boy in his last year of school said to him it's fantastic but it's too late for me wow. you know I'm, I'm leaving school this year this is too late for me and it's a real reinforcement that you know kids are only kids once and just like those Syrian refugees every year that goes by in a child's life that's out of school is a year you don't get back. Can I ask on a practical level and this this may be an impossible question to answer but what does it generally cost per pupil, per student in, say, the elementary years to provide a half-decent education? Is there, are there rules of thumb for what, how much money you need in, say, different regions to, to accomplish it? Uh, well, it's actually uh, shockingly low. Uh, our figure, um, if you're looking across our partnership, the average cost of a day's education for a child is $1.18 a day. That's in US dollars, so I can't quickly do the conversion uh, into fine. Canadian Close dollars. Enough. We know that. Yeah, but it's, it's not very much. Wow. And uh, if we look at the total financing gap between what we have now and what we need, actually the difference in terms of lifting external aid can be measured in the sense, you know, we're, we're asking people for a little bit more in that sense. Uh, what that adds 
up to though for a replenishment for the Global Partnership for Education is we are looking to replenish our funds. We can only do this good work if we've got funding from good partners and friends like Canada. Uh, and we are looking to increase our funding for the three years to come, 2018, 19, 20, uh, we want to raise $3.1 billion. Can you give a sense of the magnitude of that? How does that compare with what you currently have to spend? Uh, we're, we're looking uh, to effectively double our resources. Uh, that will bring us to being a $2 billion a year fund in 2020. That's what you'll actually spend in a year? Like, or, uh, that's, or that's what you'll have to outlay? Or? Uh, that, that's what we would have available to outlay. Obviously okay. there's some, um, you know, in terms of the expenditure, because we work with individual countries getting a great sector plan, um, you know, the mobilisation of the money can be different quarter to quarter. Uh, but but we, $2 billion a year would, would do it from your standpoint? Uh, well, you we, we, we are trying to acquit a global objective set by an international commission on education, on which I also served and which Gordon Brown chaired and which was uh, financed by the Norwegian government. Uh, we did a lot of research work and amongst the things we said needed to change to resolve this learning crisis is that GPE needed to become by 2020 a $2 billion a year fund and by 2030 a $4 billion a year fund mm. and we are seeking to achieve the first bit of that, the $2 billion a year fund in this replenishment. Canadian listeners will be curious about where we fit in this puzzle. Can you say something about Canada's level of support? Yes, Canada's level of support currently is at $30 million Canadian dollars a year mm. uh, and we will be talking to the government here about substantially lifting like that. that? Uh, well, we do need to double You're our resources. So yeah, yeah we, we do need to double our resources. We uh, we haven't talked uh, as yet, sitting here right now, we haven't talked specific figures with Canada, but we will. But we will be asking Canada not only to make more money available, uh, but we think Canada is in a unique position to influence change. Uh, your Prime Minister um, is, you know, obviously someone who cares about youth and education. He's Minister for Youth deliberately because it's his passion, uh, a former school teacher, mm. and now taking over the leadership of the G7. Mm. Uh, we think that Canada can really have a very loud voice in the global community at this moment for education and we think that that fits with the priorities that Canada has outlined for its engagement in the world, uh, including a focus on a feminist foreign policy um, and there can be no more transformative uh, change agent for girls and them having the ability to define their own lives than the empowerment that comes through education. Julie Gillard, I could ask you questions all day but may I just finish with, with one? Um, there are a lot of parts of the world that are pretty rough these days, a lot of corners of the world where I'm sure you, your fund would be concerned. How hard is it to work in places? Is it getting harder to work in parts of Africa or the Middle East or I guess some parts of Asia as well? Or is it, are there places where it's more difficult to influence schooling now than it was a few years ago? Oh, look, uh, there are um, parts of the world where uh, there are key security concerns and obviously as an organisation we've got to make responsible decisions about how we engage in those parts of the world. 
but we've um, got a good track record of sticking in even when it's hard. Uh, for example, we are the uh, largest external financer of education in Yemen, wow. um, which is not an easy place. Not an easy uh, neighbourhood these days. No, not an easy place and we've stuck in there uh, and managed uh, to work with um, people on both sides of the sort of conflict mm. uh, to keep schools open and to keep change happening. Uh, we've stayed very strongly engaged in Afghanistan and we're proud of our track record there uh, in increasing, working with the government of Afghanistan to increase the number of girls in school, uh, in particular by increasing the number of female te teachers, mm. which has been a key to unlocking the preparedness of families to send their girls to school. Um, so we, you know, our geography is right around the world, uh, but it's in many places that Canadians feel a connection to, uh, including, of course, across Francophone Africa. That was Julia Gillard, the former Australian Prime Minister who now heads the Global Partnership for Education. She was in conversation with McLean's Ottawa Bureau Chief, John Geddes. Well, that's it for this week's episode. For more of your politics and power, join us next week on The Hill. Thank you.